if you are a songwriter and you're a civilian and I'm a veteran and I need to tell my story and you come up to me and say, Hey, what's the worst thing that's ever happened to you in your life? I'm not going to tell you, I don't trust you. Yeah. But when you have another wounded veteran who calls you first and says, Hey, I'm Richard. I was blown up four times. I have a left traumatic brain injury. My buddy was shot and killed beside me. I know what that loss feels like. All of a sudden you're going to open up to me. You're going to tell me all the stuff that you've been through. You're going to want a shoulder to kind of lean on and cry on and talk to and just wore out on. And all of a sudden I say, Hey, I'm actually going to fly you out to Nashville and I'm going to be there when you get here. I'm going to pick you up. We're going to hang out that whole first day. Then the next day when we write your song, I'm going to go in that room with you and tell your story when you can't, or if you ever need someone, or if you need someone to tell that songwriter, no. And so the whole process is set up so that the veteran knows that it's, it's a trustworthy space. Richard, welcome to welcome to Millennial Manhood. Thanks for coming on, man. Hey, thanks for having me. So I've got Richard Casper with me. Uh, very interesting guy. Very interesting story. Uh, Richard, for folks who don't know who you are, don't know your story, what's the ten thousand foot view? Yeah, there's a um, there's a lot of different views in my life, <laughs> but uh, I'm going to give you a little long winded uh, cliff note series, and then I bet you'll be able to pull some great stuff from that that you want to talk about because I lived a pretty interesting life. Um, as of right now, I'm the co-founder and executive director of Creative Vets, which is a nonprofit that empowers wounded veterans to heal through the arts and music. But how I got here was pretty incredible. I was I was not an artist, and now I run a you know a nonprofit that just solely focuses on the arts. Uh, when I went to the Marine Corps, and uh, it was around 9/11 when I decided to actually join the Marine Corps. I knew I was going military at one point because I've had a lot of family in the military from a super small town where not a lot of job opportunities. And I had just this sense of just, I needed to go serve my country. And so after 9-11, I was a junior and I just said, you know what, this is, this is like the tipping point for me. So I chose to go to the Marine Corps because I said, you know, I want to be the first person fighting overseas, fighting for my country. Um, and then, so I joined and in 2003, it was about two weeks after high school graduation, I ended up going into Marine Corps boot camp in San Diego. And while I was there, I was uh, selected, and I didn't know this was even a thing, but I was selected as a special tester, is what they called it. And what's funny about that is in high school, since I knew I was going to the Marine Corps, uh, I just gave up on those state standardized testing quizzes, and I would just dial down the center. I'd just be like, C, 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 because I wasn't planning on going to college, and I was, I was going to make a career out of it. So when they called me a special tester in boot camp, I thought they were maybe referring to those tests and thought I was a little bit not as smart as the other Marines. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so what happened was actually, it's a good thing that I was a special tester. So they took about 300 of us or so. I can't even remember how many, but they took probably like 15 to 20 people from each platoon that was in boot camp at the time. And uh, they pulled us off into these rooms and they'd do a bunch of testing on us. Not like the weird, you know, Marvel testing. That would be cool, but like psychological testings and asking us a bunch of questions and pretty much more quizzes and you know, do you talk in your sleep? Does your family go out of the country a lot? Do you owe money to people? Uh, all these random things that we didn't understand at the time. And then slowly throughout the boot camp process, um, about two months into it, there's only 20 of us left. And they say, hey, you know what? This whole special tester thing, you've actually been selected to guard the president of the United States, either at Camp David or White House Communications up in Maryland. And so that was just like, blew off my whole trajectory. I was just like, okay, this is crazy. I didn't know this was a thing. And um, so after boot camp, we still had to do the normal school of infantry because that's what I signed up for is infantry to go to war. 
Um, so I still had to fulfill that portion of it. So I did two months there. And then I got had to go to a two-month security force school uh, so that I could learn pretty much how to become a technically like a police officer in the Marine Corps uh, because of the security job I was having. And then from there, I went to Washington, D.C. for 11 months uh, until my clearance went through. And they called a Yankee White Category 2 clearance, which I find funny because it sounds like it's fake. Um, so you could Google it and because uh, it's uh, over. There's a Yankee White Category 1, which is the president that they have. And then Yankee White Category 2s, which I had. Yankee White Category 3 and then Top Secret. So we're two above the Top Secret. And um, we can because I legitimately held a loaded weapon next to the president. And so we got that clearance. It finally went through. In some Marines, it doesn't come through. Some people just don't get it. They don't qualify, and they have to stay up there the whole time. But I went to Camp David, and I actually lived on Camp David for about 14 months under George W. Bush, uh, his presidency. And then from there, I transitioned out because I didn't want to stay there. I, I loved it being up there, but I knew I wanted to get out of the Marine Corps at this time. And I said, I don't want to fulfill my career here. If I don't go overseas, I won't feel like much of a Marine. And so I transitioned out of there to uh, 29 Palms, California, and that's where I ended up going to war is from there with a unit called, well, I was with 2-7 for a little bit for four months before my workup and then went to first tow platoon, went to Iraq. Within the first four months of being in Iraq, um, my Humvee was blown up four separate times, leading me to a left traumatic brain injury. And then my buddy was shot and killed beside me. And so within that's just four months of being there on my seven month deployment. And so I was considered unfit for duty. Couldn't do my job anymore. Uh, I had to stay on base, though. So for the next few months, I pretty much just sat there on on the base in Camp Fallujah and didn't really get to do anything and um, didn't have to use my brain and didn't have to do much. And so when I transitioned back to the States, I just checked out of the Marine Corps, not knowing I had any issues. I had migraines and memory loss, but I thought it was just, you know, I was still being stunned from the explosions and um, checked out the Marine Corps, didn't think anything was wrong with me. About six months later, everything, my whole like world collapsed around me with like PTSD and my TBI issues. And I went to the VA hospital and that's when I got diagnosed with everything. And then and when I was trying to go to college, I was at the point where I, my anxieties and depression were so bad. I had to do one-on-one speeches with my speech teacher. Um, it was horrible. And I would physically throw up and get sick if I knew I had to talk in front of anybody. Or even if I wasn't the first person in class um, if I was walking in late, I didn't like to be the center of attention anymore. So that would make me freak out and I couldn't go to school some days because of it. So I was going downhill real fast. And I thought to myself, you know, I need to get a degree because if I get a degree, I'll just go back into a three letter agency or go into one. Since I have my clearance, I served in the Marine Corps, guard of the president. I'll do CIA, FBI, something, some fun like that. And so what can I get a degree in? I said, you know what? I'll get an easy degree in art. That, that was my thought process, cop-out degree. <laughs> I'm just going to get easy degree in art, um, which ultimately art ended up just changing my life. And it it was in a way that helped me tell my story without physically telling it because I didn't want to cry in front of people being a combat Marine, I did, but I needed people to know my story. And so through art, I learned how to actually express myself in a way that would allow you to know my story. I wouldn't have to cry and you could just see it. On that same parallel parallel of discovering art, I was discovering creative writing and how to tell my story through song and poems and poetry and all that fun stuff. And so I got this idea that says, you know, I really don't like crying in front of people, but every time I try to bring up my buddy who was shot and killed beside me, I cry. What if I just was able to give someone a song about him and then walk away? And now he still gets to live on and I get my, I don't have to cry in front of people. So along the same parallel, I'm, I'm at this community college in Bloomington, Illinois, 
learning this uh, creative writing arts. And then I'm also writing songs on the side and trying to get to this level where I could honor Luke's life. Two years into, I get my associate's degree and I apply for the best art school in the country, the school there in Chicago. Um, and I end up getting in, which is insane in its own right, knowing that I've only studied art for two years. And so now I'm at the school there in Chicago, really diving into this arts, um, like the whole idea of transitioning my warrior brain to the artist brain, really diving into a lot of issues that I had with my TBI and everything else. And um, ultimately, I graduated from there and was almost back to normal Richard, and I couldn't believe it. And so I looked back at my life and said, you know, what? who else is going to choose art as an option? Like when they come out of the Marine Corps, like I did, probably nobody. So I wanted to design programs around for veterans like me who are transitioning out of the military who might feel a little too masculine to do the arts and almost trick them into the arts and music. Yeah. Um, and so I'll stop there for a second if you have any questions before we go on to creative it stuff. But that's kind of an overall view of my my story. No, it's it's fascinating. So you and I uh, spent a little bit of time at, at y'all's headquarters uh, visiting, I guess, maybe a month and a half ago. And I just I found it so interesting because you actually were explaining the different pieces to me and how they r- related to the stories of the veterans who were healing through this process. And it's such a cool concept because um, this is my personal opinion. You might disagree with it. You might you might not. But uh, we're very good in this country at being all rah-rah about our, our military until they get home. And then all the rah-rah stops. And, you know, we're, we're sitting here. These kids are 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, going through just all kinds of trauma. And then they, they're expected to just come back and go to college with these 18 year old kids who don't know anything about life and haven't seen anything and just pretend like nothing happened. Yeah. Um, so I think what y'all are doing and just the concept behind it is one incredibly admirable, but two genius. I appreciate that. (laughs) And I could go and explain a little bit more about the programs that we actually do now. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah. It's, it's been pretty incredible to see the growth too, but it was just this idea that a lot of veterans were not going to choose art, especially combat vets. So how do I actually get them to do these things? And I just looked back at my life and saw what helped me out. And that was having access to the the world's best art school and having access to these number one writers to be able to tell my story. Cause that was the first thing after I wrote a song about Luke uh, by myself, it didn't put him on a pedestal. I needed it to. So I actually mm-hmm. sought out a hit writer and just went to him. Cause I said, there's going to be an easier way than me just trying to relearn this, especially with a brain injury. I was like, hey, if I come to you in Nashville, will you help me tell my story? And he said, yes. And that allowed me to go down there and write pretty much a song and a half with him in three hours. I couldn't believe it. I was like, this is something I've been working on for a year. And now I'm coming to you and we sit here and talk. And now we have a song and a half. Like, this is incredible. They're seriously masters at the craft of storytelling. So it made sense after the fact. But beforehand, I thought nobody would understand my story or be able to tell it. So that's what really sparked the idea of doing songwriting first, because I knew I'd be able to attract a lot more veterans into the programming if I offered them trips to Nashville to write with hit writers. So yeah. <laughs> if they've heard a song on the radio and I said, oh, you get to write with the person who wrote that song, all of a sudden their excitement level is so high that they they want to come to your program rather than, you know, when they talk about the most recent numbers of 20 suicides a day in the veteran military space, they say that 14 of those 20 don't actually seek help. And so you're going to have to have programs that can like leverage their excitement and everything to outweigh their anxieties and oppression and their need. They want not to go to a program. They don't really want to go there. But 
when they hear that we're paying for their flights, their food, their housing from anywhere in the country to come to Nashville and write their song with a hit writer and another combat vet, it's so hard to turn down that they don't. And we've never had a veteran who's been a, who applied and got accepted to our songwriting program that didn't get on the plane and come here. Um, and so that's huge in the nonprofit space uh, because a lot of people kind of give up towards the end of like when they get close to leaving for a program, they end up getting so much anxiety and depression that they, they bail on them. And there's a lot of money lost in a lot of nonprofits, but we don't have that problem because when we first got to town, it was just, we're going to pair them with a random, you know, number one or pro writer uh, and maybe at the writer's house, or maybe, maybe we landed on music row at a really cool publishing company, but it's very sporadic. And so I built this partnership with the Grand Ole Opry and I went to them and said, you know, you have all these dressing rooms back here that are set up like writer's rooms. How about we utilize these for our veterans? So now veterans, it's even another excitement level where when they fly out here, I can say, you get to write backstage at the Grand Ole Opry with number one writers. Like nobody gets to do this. And now we've been able to attract more Vietnam veterans to our program as well, who just want that nostalgia and being like, I went backstage at the Grand Ole Opry. I told my story back there. And I wrote my song. And so the songwriting program and now four full days where veterans, five veterans come out at once. We pair them up with other veterans who've been through like-minded situations and who also have been through our program. So it's that battle buddy mentality to make sure that they're getting the story that they need to. Because a lot of nonprofits fall short in the way that they handle their programs. Yes, songwriting is very successful and healing, but you have to do it in the right way. If you are a songwriter and you're a civilian and I'm a veteran and I need to tell my story, and you come up to me and say, hey, what's the worst thing that's ever happened to you in your life? I'm not going to tell you. I don't trust you. Yeah. But when you have another wounded veteran who calls you first and says, hey, I'm Richard. I was blown up four times. I have a left traumatic brain injury. My buddy was shot and killed beside me. I know what that loss feels like. All of a sudden, you're going to open up to me. You're going to tell me all the stuff that you've been through. You're going to want a shoulder to kind of lean on and cry on and talk to and just wore out on. And all of a sudden I say, hey, I'm actually going to fly you out to Nashville and I'm going to be there when you get here. I'm going to pick you up. We're going to hang out that whole first day. Then the next day when we write your song, I'm going to go in that room with you and tell your story when you can't or if you ever need someone or if you need someone to tell that songwriter, no. And so the whole process is set up so that the veteran knows that it's it's a trustworthy space. Mm-hmm. Um, because again, those other nonprofits, they don't get the songs that we get because they're not helping them the ways that we help them. Um, it's not bashing any other nonprofit because I feel like every veteran should have a song, but we're very surgical about how we're getting these veterans to open up and express themselves. After they write this song, we the next day we go to record this song. And so five veterans get to hear the other four veterans' songs as they're listening to their song, song come to life. And now they understand right there that they're not alone. They all went into separate rooms and wrote their own stories, but now they're hearing them all come to life. And they're greeting each other and being like, oh, I feel the same way you do. Or I can't believe that. Or that's such an awesome song. It touches my life. Or I feel like I can give this to my wife now and tell that story. It's just super cool to see that now they're not alone. And then the last day they're flying out. So it's a four-day trip that's been absolutely life-changing for a lot of veterans. And then on the flip side with the art program, that's even more intensive. That's three full weeks. And we're paying for their tuition, their housing, their food. And we're enrolling them into the best art schools in the country with no art backgrounds at all and uh, teaching them how to tell that story like you saw in our facility. It's just like a song, but it's a physical piece. We're telling them how to hide their story into certain ways and use colors and symbolism and whatever's uh, touched them in their life that they need to put out there. And for three weeks, they're working towards this goal, having the access that all universities have. So access to their wood shop, their metal shop, MIG, WIG, all the uh, TIG, all the kind of weldings. They have 3D printers. They have access to 
all this awesome stuff and these world-renowned teachers to create whatever they want to create. Um, and it's spectacular at the end of the three weeks when we have a full show of all their artwork and their friends and family and, and staff get to come in and see their stories come to life and they start talking about them. Uh, and again, it's all wounded veterans that are in the same class too. So they never feel like there's someone in there that they can't trust. Mm. So what would you say, <laughs> excuse me, what would you say is the reason? Cause you guys, what I like about your approach is you're almost tricking them into getting help because you're making an offer too good to refuse. Yeah. Um, you're, you're, you're making the pain of saying no bigger than the pain of confronting their, uh, their problems essentially, which is actually really smart from a psychological standpoint. But what would you say is the reason, um, or are the reasons that a lot of these veterans don't seek out the help that is available to them, um, through more traditional means? Well, I think there's a ton of different reasons. And um, the one that is probably the one that stops them, the ones that reach out, but then never go to a program, that's straight up probably just anxieties and depression where they know that they need help, but they physically can't think they can leave the door or house to get it or it's not worth it enough for them to feel these ways. Because that's how I used to feel. Yeah. But one of the biggest, and that's a small, I think that's a small subsection of veterans. The main part of those 14 who don't seek help Honestly, it's this mentality that we're warriors. We go to war so that you don't have to see what we see. Like we're our whole idea of serving our country is to protect the people from seeing this stuff and seeing the true evil out there. And so when we come back home, we don't want to tell you. We want to, but we don't want to. It's we keep it inside and locked in. And so we never think we need help. We're so used to carrying our own pack, holding this stuff back, that every time we have a veteran who wants to come to our program, a lot of times they even say, you know, I'm not that bad. We have a guy who has 100% burns over his face and uh, can't even close his eyes all the way, lost his arm, amputee, and he's like, I think someone else needs this more than me. Like that kind yeah. of mentality of constant service means that they don't want to they don't want to take up a spot for someone else because they think they're doing all right. So it's a lot of different things. The people who are kind of, I'm doing good, to have someone else take the spot or the people who are doing bad, but they don't want to burden anybody with their problems. And so- there's just got to be a mentality change in the veteran military culture, especially as they're exiting the military, that it's okay to be vulnerable and tell your story and that you're not just taking a spot from someone. You're just growing yourself. You're figuring out it's just like in the military. We train for every different mission. And, and every time you go to a new school or a new uh, MOS, you have to train at a different school. That's what this is. You're leaving the military. You're just learning a new skill set. You're learning how to adapt with post-war and how to adapt with the new you by going through these different trainings. And I feel like if we thought about it like that, so many more veterans would actually go seek help. How much do you think I've had several veterans, uh, one, I've known just several veterans in my life and had conversations, but I've also interviewed several veterans on this podcast. And we've talked a lot about um, the identity crisis that happens for a lot of folks once they leave the military and once they stop serving in an active capacity, you know, they go from, I've got a tribe because again, a lot of these folks came in 18, you know, when you're very malleable, you, you, you know, you need a community, et cetera. So I've got my tribe, I've got my identity, I've got my missions. I'm in a structured environment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And now you're a civilian and it's like, oh crap, what now? Um, how much of that do you think the, the constant mindset of, uh, being a being a, a a warrior, being you know serving, et cetera, has to do with that of not wanting to give up that identity because of that fear of isolation and loss of tribe and and just the transition in general. 
Well, I think a lot of it comes to, they think that that's the only tribe they can have because they've been through like-minded experiences that they have been and that they just truly want to open up. But the, the real deal is that you can have a new tribe and it could be all civilians, but we don't see it that way. When we get out and I did the same thing, I would just play video games with my Marine buddies all over the country. And I would just like zone out. And that's all I'd want to do ever is be in that tribe. And, but it wasn't making me better. It wasn't making me any better. And the mm. only thing that really bonded us was the re- the way that we went to war together, which was like a family. And there's, it's probably even closer to family, but you could still find other tribes and you can still find other people who have like-minded experiences. And you could focus on, you know, instead of the veterans, it could be like a gaming community, a gaming tribe. And you're still finding this, but you go back to your veteran buddies when you need access to, or to when you need to release something. So that warrior mentality holds us back so much because we think that we, we can't integrate into normal society like everyone else and other civilians because we have nothing to talk about. But that's just one thing. War is one thing. We didn't have that before we went to war. So why do we think now when we come out that we can't connect with anybody because it's new to us? <laughs> I yeah. think we're just holding on to that, holding that and hoping that we can just be surrounded by people who feel the same way. Well, I've, uh, I don't know if you know uh, Darren Burrell with Veteran uh, Ventures Capital. So I interviewed him from one of my from my other podcasts and um so he runs a private equity fund that invests primarily or exclusively in veteran-owned businesses. And the whole concept behind it is that a lot of these veterans make really, really good business owners, but they don't have the same network as somebody who you know went and got their MBA and has been working in corporate America for 15 years. So they don't have the same doors they can knock on to go raise funds to scale their business. So this private equity group out of Knoxville actually is their, their sole purpose is in investing in um, these veteran-owned companies. And I thought that was a really interesting concept because until I'd met him, I never thought about that, that, yeah, like in my, I'm in my early thirties. And if you, if, if a comparable person who was in the Navy or whatever, my same age just got discharged and now they're out in the civilian world. Yeah. My network is going to be significantly better than theirs. I mean, they have a great military network, but that, that, that's not as, I, useful is not the wrong, not the right word, but you know what I mean. Not as yeah. not as effective um, if you want to start, you know, a barbecue joint <laughs> or, oh, yeah. or a tech startup or something. Yeah, there's huge issues with that, and uh, a lot of a lot of veterans when they get out too is that they think that they're in a, especially like the 20 year guys and girls, they get out and they're so used to being leaders that if they go into a role that's not a leadership role then they kind of feel like, again, the whole identity is gone, which it's not. But also they feel like they deserve a leadership role in the civilian space when they don't know anything about banking and they go and say, no, I need to be a supervisor or something. And it's like, no, you don't need to be. This is a whole new skill set. And I think we had a veteran who who was like a Navy UTC diver 20, 20 years um, in Virginia Beach. And he went to be he got out and he was like super pumped to get into civilian life. And he said, you know, what? I'm going to start just being a rigger at this, at this one, uh, like big shipyard and start that process of moving up. And so he was already okay with kind of being a little demoted, but the issue with him was culture. He wasn't used to having people that just didn't work or that didn't yeah. work when you told them to work and ended up, he got fired. He was the one that ended up getting fired from that job and feeling like he was a piece of crap because he didn't fit in with their culture because he had an expectation of what that looks like because for 20 years, that's what he adapted his life to. And so this was legitimately like a foreign world to him. And so then he thought that he would never survive. And luckily his wife with a few words ended up saying he was going to kill himself and his wife kind of came to his aid and 
we ended up writing a song about that, but it was just, it was incredible because he's, and the song's called like, you're worth so much more because he's is, is, but he has blinders on because the military for 20 straight years told him this is how the world works in one yeah. way. We, we talk about the topic of ego, especially amongst men on this podcast a lot and how ego in a lot of ways is our best friend because it drives us to succeed. But then it's also our worst enemy because it gets in our own way yeah. on so many different levels. So the there's no other way to explain it, but part part of feeling like you you deserve a leadership role after you leave the military in a civilian space is an ego thing. Oh yeah, like hey, Perfect. I have I have been in this position. I have led. I mean, dude, I've been to combat. I can figure out options, you know, <laughs> or 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 loans or or whatever. Um, but how do you? Is there anything in particular that you have seen that works with, you know, mitigating that ego for those folks? To, to make it easier, um, but not get rid of it completely because you still want them to have a healthy level of ego because that's going to drive them to be successful. Yeah. But you don't want it so healthy to where it like ruins every single opportunity they have. Well, no, exactly. All you have to do is say, you don't like, you don't deserve this. You got to earn it. Like, that's the thing. We, we feel like we get out and we deserve these roles, but we got to where we were because of our ego, like getting, we power through it. So when you say, Hey, you don't deserve this, but you can take advantage and take control of it because of where you were and what type of person you are, it kind of flips that script to being like, Oh yeah, I'm not just being put in this job. I'm going to yeah. make this job my own and I'm going to scale and I'm just going to grow and I'm going to outperform every single person that's here. So I do think there are definite ways around it. But again, it's that breaking down the barrier and having someone else who's been through what you've been through, just being like, dude, you don't deserve it. Like, obviously you want to think that and everything that you did to this point is awesome. But we're all veterans here just trying to survive and we're going into this field that we have no idea what we're going into. Yes, we're leaders and we're trained to do things, but we got to prove ourselves everywhere we go. And why is this different? Like we should be able to go in here, try to get the job that we feel at least like that is worthy to where we're at. But just know that even if it's under that, we just got to scale and we got to grow. And we got to outperform and just be the best at our job. So let me ask you this for you personally. So you go from not even wanting to be the uh, last person walking into class to giving commencement speeches. I think you've mentioned like Rutgers. I might be saying the wrong university, but uh, <laughs> you, you're giving commencement speeches. You're, you're talking in front of large corporations. I mean, you're uh, you're constantly out and about putting yourself out there. What was that transition like for you from, you know, the kid going to college after you know, serving in the military, not wanting to have any attention on you to having thousands of people paying attention to every word that you say. That was a very long process. And uh, I, I still remember the changing point, though, when it, everything that led up to me doing keynotes and speaking to all these people was there was it was I was baby stepping in to tell my story as I was doing art and music. And that's why I tell everyone, you don't you don't just go from where I was, you know, do I did one on one speeches with my speech teacher, like because I couldn't get up from the class. And then one of the biggest talks I gave was in front of, it was at the Bush Institute on the forum on leadership where the CEO of, the, of Boeing introduces me and there's George Bush and his wife and uh, 365 of their biggest donors and like the CEO of Uber and all these people in the crowd. And here I am, like who I thought yeah. at this point, like not really anybody. And I'm speaking at the forum on leadership to all these people. You don't just go from, you know, doing that college class to that. It took years of learning just how to find myself, how to tell my story, how to be vulnerable. Because if I never learned to be vulnerable, I'd never been able to get up on that stage. And so, but there was a process in which allowed me to, to have the confidence to actually speak there. And that was 
right after we hosted our art program at Virginia Commonwealth University. I did three weeks there. We had veterans come in. It was it was a life-changing program. It was awesome. So about a month afterwards, um, I got pinged from VCU. They said, hey, we have this conference coming up here. Um, they're they're wanting for they're looking for like a keynote speaker. We told them about you running your program out of here. They do stuff with continued education. We'd love for you to speak there. And I just said, I was freaked out a little bit because again, I hadn't talked about myself or creative events for more than probably 15 minutes maximum, and especially without getting anxiety. And so I, but I said, yes. And you know why I said yes? Because I knew that if I could speak to these hundreds of schools at once, I may be able to get my programs in these schools that are going to be life-changing. So I started thinking about the veteran saying, if I do this, then a veteran could be saved just by me getting up on stage. But I also agreed to it way far out where I didn't have anxieties right away where I said, oh, I'll deal with this in like five months when I have to actually speak here. And so then I started thinking, wait, how long do they want me to speak? They want me to speak for an hour and I have a brain injury, so I can't memorize anything. Um, How am I going to do this? And I just kept saying, I'm just going to wing it. I'm just going to, I'm going to figure out a way. And I, I still remember it hit me. I was like, oh yeah, I tell stories but I just need references to those stories about my life. What if I just put images up? Is that, is that against the rules? I didn't know anything about keynotes. I was like, is it against the rule? I asked them, I said, Hey, can I have a PowerPoint? They said, of course. I said, perfect. And so I said, okay, what do I want to talk about? I want to talk about my childhood. I was kind of crazy. And here's a photo of me in high school. And then I want to talk about uh, garden, the president. Oh, here's, here's a picture of me at camp David. And then I want to go into war because that's where I transitioned to. Okay. Here's a photo of me at war. And then, so I legitimately, put a photo for everything I wanted to talk about that guided in a linear path to what I wanted to finish with. And uh, I remember in this, so the keynote day comes up and I'm in Virginia and I'm about to speak to 118 schools, universities from around the country. And uh, I'm starting to freak out. I'm starting to feel those anxieties that I had a long time ago where I didn't want them. Um, and so I couldn't even eat breakfast that morning. In my head, I told myself I was never going to do this again. I said, okay, I'm going to get through this one, but I'm never going to do this again because I don't want to feel this way anymore. And I'm sitting in the back and I'm just trying not to think about what's happening. And I'm just going to listen for my name. But I hear this lady who gets up there and she says, hey, you know, I'm going to get down real quick because I'm I'm afraid of public speaking. But I just want to give these announcements before we announce the next person coming up. And so I held on to that line that she said because I was like, OK, this is my opener. If If you can only think of one thing, if you're kind of freaked out about giving speeches, just think about your opening line and because from there it just flows because that gets rid of all your anxieties if you have that locked in. And so I, I was like, oh, I'm going to use this. I'm going to use this. So all I started thinking about was that line. And so I get up there and I just say, I thank you so much for having me. And uh, like the last, last uh, speaker said, and this is probably something you don't want to hear from your keynote, but I hate public speaking. I don't want to be up here. <laughs> I was like, I have anxiety from being up here, but... I know what I have to say is so important that I need to be up here. So let's do this. And I walked through my brain injury. I say, I have a brain injury, so I may forget some stuff. Uh, that's why I use photos to tell my story. So from that moment, I'm so vulnerable. All of a sudden, everything fades away because now I'm like, well, if I mess up, that's not on me. They don't think I'm a professional. They don't think I do yeah. this. They know I'm doing this for a reason. And so that set me off because I spoke probably for an hour and 10 minutes. I didn't set a timer again. I didn't know these things. I wasn't sure if someone was supposed to be in the back with like, little thing numbers coming up or saying, Hey, five minutes, uh, or they're going to come out with a little hook and drag me off stage. And so I went long. And then when I got off the stage, the CEO came up to me, he said, you know, 
I've been through hundreds of these. And every time the, the keynote gets up there, I just get on my phone. And I start scrolling. He's like, I didn't, I didn't uh, pick up my phone once that whole time. He's like, will you be our speaker at our nationwide conference? Uh, not this year because we already booked, but next year. Are you booked? I was like, uh, let me check my schedule. Uh, nope, not booked. <laughs> um, this was my first keynote ever. <laughs> so, and uh, so that's kind of what set me on that trajectory. And uh, being able to like do that over and over again and just be so confident in my story and knowing that I could tell them right away what, what was wrong with me. And so that it made it a lot more comfortable. And that's what I did at the Bush Institute. I, I just wanted that one opening line and I didn't have it and I didn't have it. And I was sitting there thinking, I was kind of freaking out because again, this is a huge moment. And uh, then I start looking because I have my guitar out there and I'm going to be playing my guitar and it just hits me. I say, oh, I'm just going to make a joke. And I walk right out on the stage and I say, hold on, let me go get my safety blanket over here. And I pick up my guitar and put it on. So again, I just dropped this vulnerability that says kind of freaked out about being up here, but here's something that's going to help me out. Uh, so yeah, it was a long process, many years, uh, but there's two little key points or that little key point that kind of turned around uh, the way I thought about giving speeches. And so again, that's so smart from a psychological standpoint. I mean, you, you essentially beat them to the punch of the thing you were most afraid of. Yeah. And by that, by doing that, you defanged what you were most afraid of. Yep. And, uh, and that's a really smart move. I mean, take note. And if you're listening, um, I, I mean, I do that in, you know, and just in my professional roles, everybody's always afraid of, especially when you're trying to get a client, you know, what are they going to say? Well, I'm just going to beat them to what they're going to say. And I'm going to address it before they ever get to talk on it. Yeah. And fun fact at that point, they're like, Oh, I was thinking that and you brought it up. I appreciate that. Boom. Oh, it's, yeah. it's it, the, the venom is taken out of that. Um, so, so I'm curious. You've got, how long have you been discharged? Uh, since 2007. Okay. Since 2007. So you're looking at what? 15 years. Um, so 15 years since you've been in, in the civilian world, what is something you're still struggling with? Um, not much these days, honestly, it's, uh, being able to be an artist and a songwriter. And every time I, that's the cool thing about being a songwriter. Every time I struggle with something, I get to write about it and I get Mm -hmm. to learn through the process of writing the song how I really feel about it or what other people think about it when I sing it to them. Um, and it's a really cool process. So, I mean, I live a very good life because I don't, I don't worry too much about tomorrow. And a lot of these decisions in life too, when you think about it, my wife always gets mad at me because like buying her first house, she was freaking out. And I was like, let's do it. Having a kid, she's freaking out. I'm like, let's do it. And she's like, what she thought it was a lack of like just empathy or not caring. And I said, no, here's where I come from. I almost died so many times that if any decision I make from here on out, if it doesn't end up me dying, I don't worry about it. Like yeah. it's not, a, I care a lot about it, but I don't worry about it because I'm not going to die because of this. <laughs> so buying a home, not going to die. If we go poor, I've been poor. I've been really poor. I know I can still love and I can still carry on. That's how I built creative. It was didn't take a salary for four years and went into extreme debt, just trying to help veterans. And uh, so I know what that's like. So yeah, there's not much, not much keeping me down these days at all. And it's in helping veterans has only lifted that every year we grow our organization and, and fundraising and in veterans served. And so that just always keeps my glass full. And I think the only thing that would ever cause me a setback in life is if I didn't get to help veterans. Um, Cause I think that's another thing we didn't really touch on, but when you get out of the military, one of the biggest things you need is a new purpose and mm-hmm. uh, a huge purpose for all veterans is serving other people. And, yeah. and if you don't serve someone, that's where you kind of lose your joy in your life. You, yeah. You lose that purpose. And 
it's kind of back to the identity thing. And I, yeah. I, I want to piggyback off what you said about the worrying thing. I'm very similar to you on that front. Like, I don't really worry about much of anything. Um, it used to drive me insane. And here's where it clicked for me. It was back in college. It used to drive me insane how much people stressed about a test. Mm-hmm. And I remember just one day it clicked. One of my buddies said something and I was like, holy crap, why are you stressing about this test? The test is going to come next Tuesday, whether you stress about it or not. Yeah. So you can either prepare for it or you can stress about it, but it's still going to happen. So oh, yeah. why are you stressing about it? Yeah. I just heard someone say that you, um, and it was probably a famous guy. I just saw a little video of it. And he just said, when they asked him about what do you have to say about people who worry a lot or whatever, he said, well, you just write down everything that is bothering you. And then you cross off the things you have no control over. Ooh, that's good. Yeah, that's, that's really it just, good. It stuck with me. I was like, oh my gosh. If yeah, if everyone could just think like that, be like, what's going to happen? Oh my gosh, I have this appointment coming up. I have this coming up. And you you legitimately just scratch out the ones you physically have no control over. And then yeah. you're like, oh, I don't have much to worry about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, life is so much easier and more enjoyable when you're not worrying all the time. Oh, yeah. So much more enjoyable. And um, yeah, I mean, my wife sometimes gets onto me about that as well. She's like, I want, I need you to care. I'm like, I care a lot. I just, I'm, I'm not going to stress about this. Yeah. Like, I'm just not going to, I you can't make me. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I'm starting to stress about you trying to get me to stress. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 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 Um, that, no, that's, that's fascinating. So when, when you look, okay, let me follow up the last question though. Is there anything in the last 15 years that you still don't like about civilian life? Um, no, I mean, not really. I find joy in almost everything that I do. And, uh, I mean, obviously like the, where the country's going kind of freaks me out. Like just the society as a whole is, is going all digital and, and internal. And, um, if you talk about like, my biggest thing is to try to invent and suicide. And, but the truth is the dirty truth is that all suicide rates have went up and kids yeah. and, uh, adults and Hispanics and, and African-Americans and whites and, legitimately every every community suicides has only went up since like 2004 like drastically i think it's like 30 percent across the board for everyone since 2004 and that's when we really started this digital age of, of everyone going internal and going on facebook and going in the metaverse and going into these places where everyone needs community and they need to be around people and they need to have conversations and they need those tribes but we're getting so much more comfortable with this like this video chat um, we're getting so much comfortable with staying inside. We're getting more comfortable with watching everybody's feeds and all their awesome lives and start thinking that our lives suck. And so I think if people just dove into a deeper perspective of like what true suffering is, they're going to understand that they're not suffering. Like when you listen to some of our veteran songs, you're like, oh yeah, yeah, my life's not so bad. Oh my gosh. And then you start not worrying as much and you start going out there and having communications because our bodies and our souls just need that. They need the physical human touch, physical human interactions, um, and physical community. And that's that's the only thing I see kind of what's going wrong right now um, that kind of kind of upsets me. But again, I don't like let a lot of this stuff get in the way. Yeah, it's interesting what you say about the community thing. Um, so announcement on the podcast, my wife had had our baby. Was, <laughs> Yay! Uh, yeah, super, super exciting. Um I've talked about the pot on the podcast about her being pregnant a million times, but here, here you go. First time where uh, we have, a, we have a human that depends on us. Um, so <clears throat> we get home and, uh, my, my wife's mom, my mother-in-law is actually staying with us for a couple of weeks to help my, uh, help my wife and I out. And I was actually talking about this last night to my mother-in-law. I was like, oh, I'm so happy you're here. 
because like I for, for the first time in my life, I truly understand like, oh, it takes like a tribe. Like it genuinely takes a village yeah. because there's so much stuff just happening. And then I thought about why is this so abnormal that you're staying with us? Like, why is this unique? When, when I was born in, in Yugoslavia, what is now Bosnia, uh, my mom, when, if she was, if she needed a break, she like on the same street, she had like 15 grandmas and like 10, yeah. you know, uh, other women, her age, or she could pawn me off to and be like, I need a nap, take care of, you know what I mean? Like take care of my kid. Yeah. Um, and now it's like, it's just you. Yeah. You don't know your neighbor. Farther and farther away from family and friends. Yeah, you don't you don't know your neighbors. You don't know you don't trust your neighbors. You don't yeah. your family might be living across the country. You, you know, and you're just like stuck by yourself. And 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 you also, you know, it's helpful having somebody, especially when it's your first kid, in my opinion, you, you just don't know what you're doing. It's helpful having somebody, because I've already seen this, like with my mother-in-law and my mom's coming, um, to be like, hey, you don't have to know that. Like that's okay. Like you're just it's okay to wing it. And just having somebody who's done it multiple times tell you that yeah. is helpful. So yeah, that disconnection from the human, that disconnection from community, that disconnection from family, you know, those suicide rates really are terrifying, especially since COVID has started, especially yeah. since COVID has started. And I don't know how we rebuild that without being really intentional. Like I, I personally feel like I've got a good community, but I've had to actively personally go out and find that. Yeah. Whereas not everybody's going to be an extrovert. Not everybody's going to have an internal built in system to go find that. Whereas, you know, a hundred years ago, that would have just been the default. So it, yeah, I agree with you. That's scary. Super scary. Yeah. But I think now that especially if you were an introvert now that you have a kid, it makes you an extrovert. Cause like my son now about to be two, having him sign up for music classes now, meeting other families and stuff. And then, going to daycare and I'm meeting other families. And we just went to the park the other day and met like three other families. So it almost makes you have that community. But as you probably heard too, like, you know, birthing rates and stuff have gone down and families have gone down and people are waiting later to life to have children. And that's, again, the difference between a hundred years ago when obviously suicide rates were a lot lower is when we lived close to our family, we had our own tribe, we had our outside tribe and our internal tribe. People were there to help. And there's community everywhere around you. And we're slowly even just getting further and further away from even people just having families. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's, it's interesting. Just the entire dynamic of our society. I mean, we'll see where it ends up. Like it's not like you or I can, can no. shift uh, the direction of, of Western civilization. Um, it's interesting to talk about, but it's not like we yeah. can do much besides, like I said, create our own little ecosystems and communities. Um, anything else that you want people to know about creative vets or, uh, how to get a hold of you guys or, you know, where, just, where uh, can they learn more? Yeah. Like Creativevets.org. And that's, there's only one V in there. So create a spell out creative and then put a TS at the end of that.org and uh, listen to our music. That's the biggest thing we have. We release over 30 songs down written by veterans about their experiences. Some are happy, some are sad, some are war story, some are songs to their family or friends, because a lot of people who've just suffered trauma will understand these songs because they're not mm. all like, Hey, I was a Marine. I fought over here. I got blown up. They're written in a way that everyone could feel them. Uh, and so the biggest impact for us is people hearing our music, listening to our music and understanding our lives a little bit better to have better conversations with us. But also because that brings in you're listening for free and then royalties are being built and they're sent back to us as an organization to keep on bringing veterans. 
So it's where, a huge where win. Can they, can they, is there like a Spotify playlist? Is there any, any word streamed? If you search creative Vets on YouTube music, on Spotify, on Amazon, on iTunes, anywhere you could find music, you could find creative Vets music and you just search okay. creative Vets on there. Or if you go to the website, there's a music tab. It'll actually drop down even Napster. Napster still streaming music. Um, you can, yeah, you, it'll show you all the drop downs where you can listen to it at. Okay, perfect. Um, final question. So question I always ask on the podcast, if you can go back to 18 year old, you all wide eyed, bushy tailed, ready for the world. If there's one piece of advice you could give yourself knowing all that you know about yourself at this stage of your life and knowing all that you know in general at this stage of your life, what's one piece of advice you'd give yourself? Uh, I mean, it's probably cause I don't, you know, just like a lot of people, I don't want anything to change. So it'd be something simple, like just keep your faith. Mm. Uh, cause my, my faith is what kind of the whole time kind of guided me. Like every time I got injured and then it kept happening I said, you know what? God's got to have a plan for me. Like there has to be something just to that thought process of thinking, you know, he wants me to do something. Now I just can be conscious of it. I need to look for it. And so even at 18, if I would have thought about that more, I think every decision that would have made, I would have been more intentional and I would have probably healed a little bit quicker. I would have been able to mm-hmm. understand myself and where I was going and what the actual plan was until waiting for so long. And then actually the plan being kind of revealed to me through creative S. Yeah. I love that. Uh, creative S.org. Any other ways folks can get a hold of you or any social media or anything like that? Craigslist. I was kidding. Um, no, yeah. Just all of our social medias, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. We're trying to take over TikTok with our Ooh, music. Very Gen um, Z of you. Yeah. So get on there, listen to our music, <laughs> make some fun videos. Richard, I expect to see you just dancing your ass off. I have. I have already have. Ooh, okay. Love it. All right. <laughs> Everybody, check out Creative Vets. This was awesome. Um, manhoodpod.com if you want to get a hold of me. Info at manhoodpod.com if you want me to interview somebody or if you have constructive criticism. Keyword is constructive. Don't just complain. You got to offer a solution. Otherwise, I won't listen to you. My inbox is full enough as it is. Uh, and outside of that, uh, again, uh, Richard, thanks for coming on. This was awesome. Really appreciate you. Appreciate it. Thank and, you. And uh, hope you guys have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you soon.